Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by being, making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is James. For those of you who have not met me, I'm one of the pastors here, and it is such an honor that you would come and worship with us this morning. And if you have your Bibles, as you can see, we are going to begin a new teaching series As we go through, we plan to go through the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. You've got Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And it's been a while since we've been in a Gospel. When we first planted the church seven years ago, we went through the Gospel of John. It took us two or three years to do that. So I'm not telling you how long it's going to take us to go through the book of Luke, but I promise it will not be today. It's not going to be an overview of the book of Luke. And uh, the reason that we decided to go through this book is because it is beneficial, isn't it, to get into a gospel and to get face-to-face with Jesus, uh, to look at his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we're going to look at that through the eyes of the writer Luke. And today I plan just to cover the first 25 verses from chapter 1. And so if you are able, in honor of God's word, would you please stand with me as I read? I am only going to read one sentence this morning, but it happens to be the first four verses of chapter 1. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 4. But by the end of my message, I hope to have gone through verse 25. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most Excellent Theophilus. Verse 4, here's why he wrote it that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of certainty, and you desire that your children would walk in the certainty of your word. And so I ask again, once again, that this morning, as we open your word, that you would again be faithful to us that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see, hear, and understand, to receive your word, that we may know you more deeply and live lives that glorify Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the things that I like to say, that we like to say around here, is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is all about relationships. It's about our relationship with God, it's our relationship church with one another, and it's about our relationship with the community or the the people that God has planted us amongst. And so uh, there's a universal truth when we're thinking about relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, our relationship with the world, our community. There is a universal truth for all relationships, whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, 
And that is, if we are going to build meaningful relationships, then they have to be built on rock-solid certainty and trust, right? Uh, I don't care who you are. When it comes to opening up your lives, when it comes to opening your heart, even when it comes to opening up your pocketbook, nobody wants to feel like they have been manipulated. No one wants to feel like they have been used, and no one wants to feel like they have been lied to. Now, I remember that years ago when Kelly and I first got married, we were serving in a church in Durham, North Carolina, and I was standing in line at a bank, and behind me there was a a gentleman who began a conversation with me, and I really enjoyed talking to him, and you know why? Is because he really seemed interested in me. Now, you know people are uh, interested in my life, and you know people are interested in you when they ask you questions about you, and then they listen. You know, they don't just talk about themselves. You know that I enjoy being around people who like to hear my story because I love telling my story. And that was what this guy was in in the bank. And uh, a few days later, I I came out of the church and went into the parking lot, and he was out in the parking lot. And I was like, hey, man, what are you doing here? This is interesting that you are here. He goes, well, I, I just like to go around checking things out. Now, I was very naive at the time. I didn't even think twice about why he would show up in the parking lot that, that I, had, I had never met him at the bank, and now he's in the parking lot. But long story short, he invited me and Kelly over for dinner to meet his wife. And during the time, uh, Kelly and I shared our hearts and how we had a heart for ministry. And he asked several questions, but one that stuck out to, stuck out to me, stood out to me was, he said, what would you do if you could make a few more hundred dollars a month? I mean, what would you do with that? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to give that to ministry? Wouldn't that be nice to, to start a family with? And, and I mean, who, would, who wouldn't say yes to something like that? And so after that, he invited us to some, some meetings where he told us that we could meet some other entrepreneurs who could mentor us and they could help us reach our goals. And they, we could also, they would also help us to help others reach their financial goals. And they, he, they also said it, it would only take five or six hours a week to accomplish this. And I'm like, who would not want to do that? So we went to that, uh, got into it, and the further we got into it, I realized a couple things. Number one, this is going to take a lot more than five or six hours to make money uh, a week. And secondly, uh, I realized that I was going to have to get a lot of people in, in my downline in order to be able to make money, and uh, it caused me to start looking at people like, like as dollars, dollar signs, and I'm not up here to preach against multi-level marketing because I believe that it can be done in the right way, but it was not being done in the right way in this scenario, and the thing that bothered me about this whole story that I'm telling you is that at one point, it finally hit me that this man who had begun a conversation in the bank didn't uh, start it because he was interested in me. He wasn't really trying to help me financially. I realized I was going to be the one that was helping him financially. And I felt manipulated. I felt lied to. I felt used. And so this quickly eroded my confidence in our relationship, which ended shortly thereafter. And the point that I'm wanting to make here is that when we, again, when we open our lives, when we open our lives to God, when we open our lives to one another as brothers and sisters 
in Christ, as we are in the community and we're, we're opening our lives there, we don't want to be hoodwinked, do we? And we want to make sure that we're not doing that to anyone. And in our text today, I want to bring that over to our text today because it relates to why what I'm sharing about being hoodwinked relates to what Luke, the reason that he wrote this orderly account to a, an, a most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus. And that was to assure him that he hadn't been deceived, that Theophilus had not been deceived with what he had been taught already about Jesus. And when it comes to Theophilus, there is a debate as to who he was. His his name literally means loved by God. And some believe that Theophilus was not a real person. He was not an actual person, but that Luke is He is greeting all who have put their faith in Jesus and are loved by God. Now, I don't tend to believe that. I believe that Theophilus was a real person. He probably, in my estimation, was a high-ranking official or wealthy individual who helped fund Luke as he was collecting his data to uh, write this orderly historical account of the earthly ministry of Jesus. But you know what the truth is about Theophilus? Nobody knows really who Theophilus was. And so we're not going to spend a lot of our energy debating who he is. What we do know is why Luke wrote to Theophilus, whether he was real or not. And that is verse 4. It says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught about Jesus. And if you're taking notes this morning, the first gospel truth that I want to share with us this morning is that God desires our faith to be certain. God desires that our faith would be certain, that we would passionately abandon our lives to follow Jesus with full certainty and confidence. That's God's desire for us. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God raised up the only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he, wrote, he raised him up to compile and to write an orderly account of Jesus' earthly ministry. And, and as many of you know, Luke was a well-educated doctor, but he was also a gifted historian. And because of his attention to detail and accuracy in, re, in recording archaeological details from his time period, British archaeologist William Ramsey wrote this about Luke. He said, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. He was a gifted doctor. He was a gifted historian. And he was also a a medical missionary who was a close traveling companion and a friend of the Apostle Paul during his missionary journeys. And when it comes uh, to the character, uh, to in, when it comes to character, integrity, and loyalty, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote about Luke when Apostle Paul was near the end of his ministry. He's, we can find this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and then verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Luke was faithful. 
Luke stood beside Paul when he was in prison. And because God wants our faith to be certain, he raised up a gifted, educated, loyal disciple to give us this orderly account that we call the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel according to Luke. And in verse 4, that says that we may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. You know, one of the reasons that I love the Gospel according to Luke is because Luke gives us insights and details into the life of Jesus that the other three Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, um, actually, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and John don't give us, that they omit. For example, Jesus' birth, shepherds at the manger, and that little window into his childhood is only found in the book of Luke. The parables of the lost sheep, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son are only found in Luke's gospel. The famous phrases that we, that we often quote like, Martha, Martha, or Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, or today you will be with me in paradise. These are only found in the book of Luke. And I also love this gospel because from this gospel, we know that Jesus cares about at least three different types of people. Number one, we're going to see that he cares about the poor. We're going to see that he cares about the lost. And my favorite is that we see that he cares about short people because of the account of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Amen? Okay, yes. All right. All right, and so through written documents, eyewitness accounts, and oral tradition, Luke meticulously labors to give us this gospel so that we can avoid being what the book of James says, being double-minded, unstable, tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea. God definitely desires our faith to be certain. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the second gospel truth I want us to see is that God, while he desires our faith to be certain, God allows life circumstances to be uncertain. Let's look at uh, verse 5 in our passage. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before, the, before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, what's interesting is that the name Zechariah means God remembers. And that's important for us to remember in just a second, because for the past, in the time of Zechariah, it had been 400 years since there had been a prophet in Israel. And Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it's the last prophetic utterance that God gave his people. And in Malachi Verse uh, chapter four, verse five. The last two verses of Malachi in this way, this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, for four centuries. There was no, like I said, prophetic voice among God's people. You know, that's a very long time, isn't it, humanly speaking? The United States of America isn't even 300 years old. 
Think of all the history that would be lost if we just erased 300 years of uh, the history of the United States. But it was 400 years since the voice of God had spoken through a prophet in Israel. And that's a long time. And I'm sure that the, the children of Israel had to have been tempted to believe that maybe God had forgotten his people. Maybe the promise that God gave to Abraham to send the Messiah, God had forgotten about it. And as we saw in just, just, a, uh, just a minute ago, that Luke says that, uh, points out that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And when he says that, he's not saying that they were sinless. He's not saying that they didn't need a Savior. Scripture is very clear, even in, the, in uh, Luke, that we all need a Savior. There is none righteous, no, not one. But what it is saying about this couple is that they were a, a couple, a people who had faith. They were a people of faith. They be, and, and what I mean by that is that they believed God's word. They believed his promises, and that faith caused them to live exemplary lives as they lived among the people. They were faithful. It's important to see right here that they were faithful followers of Yahweh. But something happens or didn't happen, rather, God allowed a circumstance of uncertainty into their faith-filled lives. And this priest, whose name means God remembers, probably, at times, was feeling that God had forgotten him. Because in verse 7, look at what happened. It says, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And, you know, although God desires for his children to have certainty in their faith, he also often allows our circumstances to be uncertain. And we see that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children, and they had no hope for children at this point because they were past the years of childbearing. And you know, in, in our culture, this happens, and, and uh, we usually show sympathy towards those who are dealing with infertility. If Zechariah and Elizabeth were in our congregation, uh, I am sure, certain that we would show sympathy, and, and, but we'd also ask questions, wouldn't we? Um, we would say things like, man, they would make such awesome parents, wouldn't they? Um, especially since they love the Lord. I, I, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Why, why is God not giving them children? When there's so many people that don't want to have children, why, did, why isn't, doesn't he give them children? We would have sympathy towards them. But, you know, in the Jewish culture, it was not like that. And that's because rabbis wrongly taught that infertility was a sign of God's displeasure with a couple. And so... The Jewish culture uh, community most likely speculated as to wonder what that dark, deep, dark sin is that this couple uh, is being disciplined by God. I wonder what it is that's bringing about his displeasure. And, and I am certain that this uncertain circumstance had to have tested the faith of this God-fearing couple. 
They had to have asked when they were younger, what's going on? We love the Lord. We're serving him. Is, is there something we did or is there something we didn't do that's causing God to withhold his blessings? I think that they probably struggled with this because I know this is things that we struggle with, don't we? Um, we can all relate to this in our lives. When, when God withholds something from us that we believe would be good for us. And, you know, even though we hold to the theology that teaches that God only gives what is good for his children and to his children, we hold to that. But when God withholds good blessings that we desire, when he withholds them from us, it tests our faith. Do we really believe that? Are we going to truly cling that God knows better? And in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke has made it clear that their barrenness was not due to sin or disobedience. And the good thing is, spoiler alert, listen, if you don't know how this story ends, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, they are going to finish well. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to cross the finish line in faith with God. But you know, in many cases, in many instances in, in our world, uh, in our day and age, that's not the truth. There's countless numbers of, of individuals in our day and age who are doing what's called deconstructing their faith or abandoning their faith in Jesus. And, and it's, it's people that once had a faith in Jesus. They were excited about Jesus. They were excited about knowing him and following him and making him known. But then uncertain circumstances arise, confusing circumstances that test their faith. And when God doesn't act in accordance to how they think he should act, then it shakes their faith in God. It, it, it's like when I, was, when I was personally five or six years old. Uh, there was this TV show that I watched that's called The Six Million Dollar Man. Now, I know I've talked about it before, but i got to talk about it again because this was like one of the all-time greats, the $6 million man. It's about an astronaut whose spaceship crashes on Earth, and it says he was barely alive. You know, But, but technology, the government has this technology. We can yes, we can, amen, we can, we can rebuild him. The world's first bionic man, better than he was, better, stronger, faster, so, as I was a child, I loved this guy. Um, he had a bionic arm, two bionic legs. His eye, he could see real clearly, uh, like a mile away. And I would run around the house in slow motion. The reason I would run around in slow motion is because that's what, um, in the movie, he would be in slow motion. Everything he did was in slow motion, and I would make a noise. I would make the bionic noise. What was the bionic noise? Yeah. And you're done. And you're running like this. And then see how his eyes like this. I loved this right here. He'd do like that. I'd stop and look like that. Anyway, this, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Well, my grandparents, who lived in Reedsville, North Carolina, were coming up to visit us. And when they came, they often would bring presence. And I don't know how I got this into my head, 
But somehow, I believed that they were going to bring me a $6 million man bust-out model kit. Okay? I went online and looked it up. This is exactly what I thought my, my grandparents were going to bring me. Um, can you go to the next slide where it zeroes in? No glue needed, okay? Look at this, bionic uh, bust out, everything needed to build the entire scene. And it was, it's one of those things where you would paint it and models uh, were really big back in the day when I was growing up. And I just, I can, I can feel what I felt back then. I really, I still want it, okay? But I remember what I felt like. And so I stayed up late. They, they didn't get there till like after nine or 10 o'clock, but I stayed up waiting for them. And when they got there, to my disappointment, they didn't have the $6 million man bust-out model kit. Needless to say, they didn't even know what I was talking about. And let me tell you, my faith was shaken in my grandparents. Why did they not bring me my $6 million man bust-out model kit? And, you know, looking back, I realized that the reason that I was disappointed was not my grandparents' fault. It wasn't their fault. It was because I had misplaced my faith. I was expecting something from my grandparents that they had never promised. And the reason I tell that story is because that's how we can sometimes relate to God. Expecting things from God that he hasn't promised us in this life. Expecting him, for example, to repair our broken marriage or to heal our terminally ill loved one. Or expecting him to give us that, you know, that big break that you need right now at work or financially. You just need that big break and you've been desperately praying for it and he just doesn't come through and give it. And you know, for sure, we talk about this a lot here, that God, God welcomes our hearts uh, to be poured out to him. He wants us to express what we desire. But listen, if we are not careful, we, like I did as a child, can misplace our faith and allow our desires to become expectations which went which when, if they are unmet, will lead to disappointment, which will lead to bitterness and cynicism. And that will erode the certainty of our faith in God. And that's why I want to give you the third gospel truth. And that we need to understand that God's promises are certain. God's promises are certain. And I believe that this is why Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't become bitter towards God. We know that they didn't become bitter to God because they kept serving him faithfully. They trusted him. I'm not saying that they didn't have struggled with this. I know they had to have struggled with it. They had to have prayed, Lord, we ask that you would give us children. But as the years kept going and God said no, and they got older and older and God said, no. And at some point, they realized that dream is impossible in this life. But I believe that they held to the promises that God had given them. 
Let's look at verse 8. It says that now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Zechariah sees this angel, and he is terrified, as we all would be if an angel of the Lord came down right now in this service, we would not be taking selfies with him. We would be on our faces because being in the presence of an angel of God makes us aware of our sinfulness and God's judgment that we deserve because God is holy and so are his messengers from heaven. Verse 13, it says, but... The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Now, when, it, when the angel says your prayer has been heard, some would say that Zechariah never gave up on his desire to have children. And so he was standing at the altar, still faithfully asking the Lord, presenting his request before the Lord, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would give me this child. And, and people are, will use this to say, you know, encourage you, never give up on your desires. And uh, that he kept asking until God's, now he's going, your prayer has been heard. Now, I personally have a difficult time believing that that is what he was praying for. And it's because... During Zechariah's time when he was a priest, there were about 18,000 Jewish priests in Israel during his time. And only 14 of those priests in a year were selected by God. God they would cast lots, and through that, God would use that to select the priests that he wanted to go into uh, to pray, to, offer, uh, uh, to burn incense, and to offer prayers on behalf of the people. So you can imagine how honored Zechariah had to have felt uh, as he, it's like he won the lottery. This is, this is like a truly once-in-a-lifetime event. And as a faithful priest, he would not have gone into the temple to offer prayers on behalf of himself. Okay, that would be like you coming to me at the end of the service, heavy-hearted about a situation in your life, and you say, James, will you pray with me about this? And I'm like, okay, let's pray. And the entire time, I just pray about myself. I pray, God, help me, and, and, and go through my family. That would be what Zechariah would have been done, doing because he was, he was um, as a faithful priest, he was to burn incense and offer prayers on behalf of the people. And, and so I believe that he was... Uh, praying for the nation of Israel, who, who were currently under the heavy-handed oppression of the Roman government. Um, I believe that he was praying for the peace of Jerusalem and that he was praying for the promised Messiah to come. And so it seems to me that Gabriel is saying, your prayer for the nation has been heard. God has remembered his promise to send the Messiah, and he gives them this promise of certainty. And listen, I want you to see the promises that God gives in, in this section. He promises your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. 
Okay, so that's a promise, and we see that that is going to be fulfilled. Who will be the forerunner of the Messiah? Verse 14, let's look at some more of the promises that God gives. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. There's two promises there. Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Even from his mother's womb. You see that? This verse right here uh, shows what God thinks about the child in the womb, that the child in the womb is a sacred human life. The Holy Spirit is going to be upon this child. And he describes his ministry. He describes the ministry of this child, whose name will be John, by echoing the words of the prophet Malachi that I read earlier. Let's look at verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now listen, I could preach for hours on this passage right here. This, I love this passage right here. Uh, I have preached on it in, um, for Father's Day in the past. And the reason is, is because when I was a, a young father, when I was a young man, I saw this passage and it, it really amazed me that one of the primary uh, duties of John in preparing the nation of Israel for the, the coming Messiah was to restore the family unit. And here's how. By calling fathers to repent and to give their hearts to the spiritual welfare of their families, to, to their children. I, I could go on and on about this, but I'm going to give a few statistics because about fathers. Because fathers, gentlemen, there is something that God is calling us to as men within the family. Here's some st statistics I want to share. Children without a, uh, a father are four times more likely to be living in poverty twice as likely to drop out of high school, and two times more likely to commit suicide. 90% of the youth in the United States who decide to run away from home, 85% of the youth who are currently in prison, and 63% of youth who commit suicide grew up in fatherless homes. And when it comes to the, the spiritual, um, speaking spiritually, listen, if a child who lives in a non-Christian home, comes to Jesus and goes back and lives in that home, there is a 6% chance that the rest of that family is going to come to Jesus. If it's mom, it, it triples to 18%. But if dad comes to, to Jesus, if dad becomes passionate about Jesus, a passionate disciple about Jesus, if his heart is turned to Jesus and his heart is turned to his family, research shows that 94% of the time the rest of the family will follow. That is amazing statistic, and, and it shows us how God designed the family to work. And that's why he sent the angel to Zechariah to give him good news and tell him, you're going to be a dad. And you're going to have a, a son. The promised forerunner of the Messiah. And his ministry, part of his ministry, 
is going to be to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to get the people ready to receive Jesus when he steps onto the scene. Now, Zechariah, in verse 18, it says that he said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God's promises are certain. When God promises it, he cannot lie. It will come to pass. And so Zechariah does not believe him, and God disciplines him for his unbelief by making him mute until the day of John's birth. And in verse 21, it says, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak. Okay, God's promise. He said, you're going to be unable to speak. He was unable to speak. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And look at verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Why? Because God's promises are certain. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among the people. You know, we all want our lives to have this storybook ending like Zechariah and Elizabeth, where God takes away our reproach or he gives us that that blessing that our heart so desires. And it is so good when he does, isn't it? When he blesses us, when God gives us blessings. But you know, there are times, as this passage shows, where God's plan is not our plan. More often than not, actually. There's many times when God's plan doesn't make sense in the moment. This side of, eter- of eternity. And sometimes we're not going to get that clarity. Sometimes we are not going to get that closure or realize that dream of our hearts in this lifetime. That is the truth. One of the things that Jesus promises us is that in this life, you will have trouble. That's something that we need to to grab hold of, but not by itself, because he doesn't end there, does he? He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so as I'm closing here, as I'm closing here, I just want to ask you to ask yourself, is there anything that, that you're struggling with that you are wanting from God that he's not giving to you. It's a, it's a thing that would be good. It's not, not something evil. And then I want to ask you, can you trust his plan is superior to yours? 
Are you willing to take your plans? Are you willing to take your dreams? Are you willing to take your understanding? In other words, are you willing to take your life and sacrifice it on the altar before the Lord? Knowing that he knows best. But not only that, knowing that he sacrificed his son. Remembering that he sacrificed his son. He gave his life. Jesus gave his life for us. And that right there, the promise that Jesus died for us, that is a promise of certainty. It's a promise that he loved us enough to die for us. And that's why we can always completely, with certainty, give ourselves to God because he completely gave himself for us. Amen? Let's pray as Pastor Terry comes. Father, again, I praise you that you are the God of certainty. I praise you that you are not trying to trick us, use us. I praise you that you love us. And we know that you love us beyond a shadow of a doubt because you sent your son. And Jesus, you died for us. And I pray that you would help us this morning to trust in you, to trust in your promises, which are certain, that we may know you more deeply and that we may live lives that glorify you. I pray this in Christ's name.